after the mortar hit, a bunch of people were wounded and killed, and it was bloody mayhem, etc. These are teenage rebels fighting the Gaddafi's forces and a bunch of journalists, and no one knew what to do with a bleeding groin wound, right? I mean, those are very, very dangerous. But if you stuff the wound and put pressure on it, you might slow, you're not going to stop the blood loss, but you might slow it down enough that you deliver the person to the hospital, you know, still barely alive. And at that point, they get a transfusion and then it's game on, right? And now it's like, oh, now we have a chance, right? If you do nothing, they, they're dead in three minutes. And yeah. And so I realized that most journalists and myself included that, you know, we really journalists collectively just don't don't have any medical training. So I started Reporters Instructed and Saving Colleagues, and it was to train freelance war reporters in frontline combat medicine. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to season two of Change Agents, an ironclad original proudly presented by Montana Knife Company. This episode is about war journalism and the dangers that combat journalists face and how people can help. My guest today is Sebastian Younger, an award-winning war journalist, as well as a best-selling author and the founder of the organization Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues, R-I-S-C. His works include the books Freedom, Tribe, War, A Death in Belmont, Fire and the Perfect Storm, as well as the film Restrepo and Coringal, The Last Patrol, Which Way is the Front Line from Here, and Hell on Earth, The Fall of Syria and the Rise of ISIS. He recently launched his latest initiative, Vets Town Hall, a series of events that allow veterans to share their experiences serving this country. A few stats about the dangers involved with war journalism. According to the National Institute of Health, War journalists' lifetime prevalence of PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, was 28.6%, and the rates were 21.4% for major depression. And according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 2022 saw the largest spike in the deaths of journalists, with 67 killed. That is a 50% increase from the previous year. According to a recent report, 80% of journalist murders go unsolved, especially in their reporting from countries including Syria, Somalia, Haiti, and South Sudan, where there have been 47 unsolved murders of journalists. And right now, Mexico has the highest number of unsolved murders of journalists sitting at 23. Let's get into the episode. Bring me up to speed. And... Talk to me about kind of your family growing up, where you grew up, and then how you got into the occupation of what I'll describe as war journalism. I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please feel free to uh, reframe it if you want. It's not it's not a common occupation, for sure. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, war reporting is just journalism applied to a war zone. It's the same, the same process. You know, there are different risks. And, but, you know, basically, your standards are objectivity and the truth. 
And, you know, when you quote people, you have to quote them accurately and you got to double check your facts, blah, blah, blah. And that's true at a school board meeting or in Ukraine. Like it's that's just what journalism is. Practicing journalism in a war zone uh, has, you know, some some physical consequences that the school board meeting doesn't have. And that's when you that's when you wind up with a category of war reporter, because not everyone wants to take those risks or not everyone is interested in that sort of a claim. And um, so, like, not everyone wants to be a soldier, you know, so. um, uh, So I I grew up outside of Boston. I was born in 1962. And during the height of the Cold War, my dad was a refugee from two wars. Um, Three, if you count fascist Germany, his father was Jewish. His mother was Gentile, was Austrian, a Catholic. And uh, my dad was born in Dresden. And in 1933, when he was 10, the year of the Reichstag fire, his father figured out like where this was headed. He was a, his, his dad was a journalist, very savvy guy, knew everybody in Europe. And uh, I mean, everyone of prominence in Europe. And, and so they left and they went to Spain and um, where there were family roots. And, uh, and then in 36, the fascists showed up in Spain under Franco and the, 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 uh, a democratic, co- a liberal coalition won a national election, and Franco said that the fact that they won proves that they stole it. There's no way that a democratic coalition could win a national election in a Catholic, in a conservative Catholic country. That means they stole it. So we're we're going to impose order. We're going to reclaim our democracy. And he waged war against the government and won. And so my father's family fled again to France. We all know what happened in France a few years later. And he came to this country. So I grew up. Um, my dad was a, an atheist. He was a physicist. He was a, a rationalist. Uh, and I grew up venerating those things. And I grew up loathing, absolutely loathing fascism and um, in all its forms. And uh, I, I loathing nationalism, uh, all of that's all those related uh, sins. Um, and because of my father's experience and, 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 and I grew up being kind of fascinated by war. I mean, a lot of young boys are, but my father's family was very affected by war and I grew up during Vietnam and I just, it was inconceivable that America would wind up in another ground war in Asia or whatever. Like that was my assumption. Right. And, uh, but I had a chance to understand war in a personal way in 1993, when uh, the Bosnian Serbs attacked in 92, attacked Sarajevo and laid siege to Sarajevo. And, you know, long years before the U.S. was involved there. And there was this raging civil war. And I went to Sarajevo to learn how to be a war reporter. I was already a journalist, uh, but I never covered a war. And for personal reasons, I was very, very curious about war and about myself in war, like how I would react, what, how I would conduct myself and what it was like. And um, I got to Sarajevo and I saw this sort of amazing thing, which was this sort of organic territorial defense of family and territory. Right. I mean, neighborhoods were collecting into these defense units, digging trenches and fighting off the Serbs, just like the Ukrainians are doing with the Russians now. And, um, you know, people were living. They were they were cooking over wood fires and getting water out of gutters, out of their roofs and, you know, whatever. It was a. Stone Age existence in a modern city. And everyone was involved in the defense of the city. And um, I was completely fascinated by that. And I'll end with this. I had the completely 
self-indulgent thought, wow, how lucky they are. Like they're really experiencing community. They're really experiencing mm-hmm. connection. I grew up in a wealthy American suburb and I've never experienced that. And I'm the poorer for it. And I say self-indulgent because of course the cost paid by those people for what I considered a blessing uh, was enormous, unacceptable. Uh, one, one out of five people in that city were killed or wounded, children included, one out of five, right? Uh, but they did get this elemental experience of being a collective defense and sort of human unit in a adverse, like in a, in a in a dangerous place of hardship, right? And and it brought people together. And there was graffiti on the outs, outside Sarajevo. There was graffiti on a wall that said, "After the war ended, and society fell apart again, there was a graffiti. There was graffiti that said things were better when they were bad." And I believe they, the, the person who wrote that was talking about the sense of unity that they all felt during the siege. I mean, I think you could tie a parallel to the sense of unity that you and I are old enough to remember feeling palpably post 9-11. Yeah. In the, and the, I mean, whew, I'd say hours, definitely days, kind of shocking now looking in the rearview mirror how fast it it dwindled. And so I think maybe it weeks and you know maybe up until the first anniversary of 9-11, but it was... There was a cohesive feeling, I think, in this country that I have never felt before, and I and I don't believe that I have felt it since yeah. then. Yeah, and you know, you can think of it in evolutionary terms. Like we, we are, we, you know, humans don't have claws, we don't have sharp teeth, we can't run very fast, we can't climb trees. On a sort of animal level, we're quite defenseless. In a group, particularly with tools, with weapons, we are we are fierce. We can defend ourselves. Um, you know, one man with a sharp stick against a bear is not going to win. A hundred men against a bear with sharp step sticks, they are going to win, right? But you got to trust that the guy next to you isn't just going to run away, right? You have, there has to be some <laughs> sense of, of mutual commitment. Like, yeah. I'm here, brother. Like, you don't have to worry. I'm not, you know, what happens, to, my definition of tribe is what happens to you happens to me, right? And yeah. And so when humans are in that kind of situation, you give up your sort of personal agenda, your personal autonomy, your personal interests. And what you get back is this group defense that is the only way you're going to survive adversity. You're not going to, humans die almost immediately if they're alone in nature. They do not, we do not survive. This idea, this American idea of the rugged individual that walks off into the wilderness, blah, 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 complete nonsense, right? Like, like survival is almost impossible by yourself in a group. This is how, you know, this is what humans do. We're social primates. So, so what you have is like in, a, in an urgent situation, a dangerous situation, this collective thing in, engages people and, and it makes people almost, uh, almost euphoric in their sense of purpose and, and union, right? It's just, you're giving up your individual interests, which has an evolutionary downside. The upside is that you'll all survive. The downside is that your individual, your individual interests and benefits disappear. So when there's no emergency, it makes evolutionary sense. Okay, the group doesn't need me. I'm good. We're good. Like, there's no enemy on the ridge line. We got food. We got okay, awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna spend my time trying to invent the bow and arrow, or I'm gonna spend my time trying to invent the iPhone or whatever. And so that individual endeavor is also enorm- enormously adaptive for humans, but it stops immediately as soon as there's a threat. The the in some ways the pity of modern society. The great blessing of modern society is that there's almost never a threat, but there's also a loss there because along with the loss of threat 
we lose an urgent sense of community, the kind that arises spontaneously when planes fly into buildings or whatever. Yeah. You know, can you have it both? Like, can you have that sense of unity without the threat? I doubt it. Like, why would, why, why? Like you're giving something up for, for, uh, for nothing in, so, in a way. It's just very hard on the human spirit. I, you know, I think that lack of unity makes people depressed and suicidal and everything else. You know, organic, small-scale organic societies essentially do not have a suicide problem. The price that modern society pays for having all this wonderful convenience is that we lose some, some percentage of the, of the public to suicide. Oh, well, you know, I mean, in a sense, it's like, okay, that's just anti-car accidents and to many other things. Like, that's just the price we pay. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment, you know, in our desire. It seems almost as if pain and discomfort has become a medically treatable condition in yeah. the first world that we are living in. And I guess it would be possible, depending on the trajectory of the world, to live your life without having faced that existential threat. And I just, I don't wish it upon anybody, but I actually do wish that everybody had that experience. So you could at least juxtapose the two and have better context of where you sit in the balance between those edge cases. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite common that people that survive a, um, you know, a, a situation of urgency and danger where they had to act in a collective. So the blitz of London or a hurricane or a tornado in the wake of a hurricane or a tornado or 9-11 or whatever, like it's quite strange, but people often miss. I have friends that live on the, on the, on the Gulf coast in Mississippi. And there was a very common sentiment after Katrina that they missed, they missed the aftermath of Katrina because everyone banded together, right? There wasn't yeah. enough food, the gasoline, blah, blah, blah. People really missed it. People missed the bad times. Things were better when they were worse, as the graffiti said, right? So how can you know? How can you at least approximate that a little bit without having to have the tornado or the <laughs> the aerial bombardment or whatever? You know, whatever. Like how can how can you sort of have your cake and eat it too? And I think one way is to have mandatory national service. So granted, it's not a you, you know you're not you know you're not facing an enemy on the ridge line, but just the collective enterprise of something difficult, you know, done in a group. So I was, I'm on, um, I'm on my second marriage. My first marriage was to a woman who grew up in communist Bulgaria. You know, they haven't been in a war, in a war since World War II, basically. And when she was a teenage girl, they, they, they you know, all the teenagers did um, this sort of youth, this, the, the, the sort of youth core during the summer and they lived together in barracks and they worked on farms and they learned to dismantle an AK-47 to fight the Americans because the Americans were certainly going to invade Bulgaria for some reason right so they, so the, the you know the, the the youth were living collectively in sort of rugged circumstances and they freaking loved it right they absolutely <laughs> absolutely loved it right and my wife is like there was always a cool guy with the guitar and, you know, you know, they had affairs and they had they grew up. Right. They, and 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 they were doing serious things. They were preparing to defend their society from, you know, the capitalist dogs across the ocean or whatever. Right. So so I think they're the, that collective enterprise, particularly with young people, it gets them out of the home. They experience autonomy. They experience collective action. I think it's enormously healthy. And they and they get to they get to experience being part of a group and subordinating your your personal preferences and oh I'm cold I'm hungry I'm this I'm that shut up I don't care what you are right now you know we're not we're not going in to get a meal until we finish 
filling that hole in or whatever they do, right? Like, yeah. And I think that's enormously healthy and certainly in keeping with our human evolution, hundreds of thousands of years of, of evolution, and it, it would be eminently doable in this country. A mandatory national service with a military option, right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure it would be impossible, politically impossible to pass that legislation, but that doesn't mean it's not a great idea. I agree with you. What was your own experience like the expectations of going into a war zone and then the reality of actually spending time there for the first time? Well, I, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't with American forces, of course. I, I you know, I, I was in a language, you know, country where I didn't speak the language and I was with a couple of other freelancers and, you know, we, we all spoke, you know, figured out to speak a little bit of Bosnian, basically Serbo-Croat. And, um, I, I, you know, I was in it with a civilian population. And if you were outside, you were running the risk of being hit by a mortar because they were mortaring the city and snipers and all that. And, um, I completely fell in love with it. I mean, I, like, I was like, oh, this is it. Like, this is what I want to, this is not just what I want to do as a journalist. This is where I want to be because this feels real in Belmont, Massachusetts. You know, I like pretty affluent white suburb of Boston, like does not feel real. It feels like, you know, an uninteresting dream. Like, I, I mean, I like, this isn't, this is not how humans have ever lived. Like what, what is all this safety and comfort and, um, and, and banality, like, and, and, uh, so I, you know, and I got very depressed when I came, I wasn't living in Belmont anymore, obviously, but I got very depressed when I came home because all of America felt kind of unreal. I'm like, this is just too easy. Like, this is not, re this does not feel like real life. That feels like real life over there in Sarajevo. And, and, and I had versions of that every time I went overseas and came back and, you know, including when I finally, eventually towards the end of my career wound up, you know, with American soldiers embedded with American soldiers. But most of my experience covering wars was not with American soldiers. It was in, you know, civil wars with indigenous forces. Yeah, I wanted to uh, to fast forward. And for people who are not aware of some of the volume of work that you've done, I personally describe the documentary Restrepo as the most accurate representation of at least my own personal experience um, in Afghanistan. Um, you know, <sighs> deeply entrenched, you with the American forces at the time in a very isolated area that I think 99.99% of people would be unable to find on a map, spending a substantial amount of time with them. How did that shape your understanding of combat, being finally co-located and embedded yeah. with American soldiers? Well, you know, the civil wars that I covered, I mean, I was in Afghanistan starting in 1996, and then I was in there with 2000, in 2000 with Ahmad Shah Massoud in the north in Barakshan when he fought Al-Qaeda and... Uh, and, and the Taliban. Um, I was in the civil wars in West Africa. And so the, you know, first and foremost with American forces, I didn't, I, you know, I, I, I was able to trust them. Right. Mm. I didn't necessarily know when I was with the Kamajor forces in Sierra Leone outside Freetown fighting the RUF. I, you know, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know that I could trust those guys. Right. I'm so sorry. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's New York city out there. It's here. That's here. awesome. Still here folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of them were pretty whacked out on drugs and a lot of them were teenager, you know, like, you know, by teenagers, I mean, 12, 14. Right. And, you know, very, very volatile. And I, you know, I didn't, I had no idea that if I could trust them and, and, you know, some, you know, some bad things happened to some journalists from the people that they were with, not yep. from the enemy. Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, with American forces, I'm like, oh, this is easy. Like, I don't have to 
I don't have to, you know, like check my back at, at, at all, right? And if something happens to me, you know, a helicopter is going to come and get, get me out of here, right? Like, uh, as they would for any other of the soldiers. So that, you know, the the the, um, co- the luxury of that knowledge made it a lot easier to take risks comfortably. And, uh, and then in addition, the sense of unity and purpose that comes with being part of a platoon was completely transcendent. That didn't, there was no equivalent of that in a, you know, West African civil war where I don't really speak the language and et cetera. And I'm like the one white guy in a, like, uh, it's, there's no there's no analogy to what you experience in, as an American in a, an American unit, uh, and um, of course not that I was a soldier. I never and you know I've never picked up a picked up a weapon in combat, um, but um, but with my video camera I became part of that platoon, and my role was not to fight but to document. And everyone in the platoon was on board with that, and. The sense of purpose that I got from being in that role, the sense of loyalty I had to those guys, and I could clearly see vice versa. Um, it was the best feeling I've ever known, right? I mean, it was just like, ah, oh, it's like it's like falling in love with someone, right? It's like, oh, finally, this is it. This is the feeling of connection I've always been looking for. It's just in our society, we have a sort of paradigm for falling in love with one person. We don't have a paradigm for being part of a, a of a group that you are fully, fully committed to, right? Like there's just no paradigm for that and there's no opportunity for it and there's no need for it. Uh, uh, almost never a need for it. So that, so it was very, very powerful. And one of the things I struggled with afterwards was giving that up. I'll never go, you know, I'll never be back with that group again. And it was heartbreaking. You know, it's like, you know, your high school, your high school graduating class times a thousand. <laughs> like if your high school graduating class had been in combat, right? Then you might feel something like what those guys felt and like what I felt. Very sad. Well, it's such an interesting position that you were holding as well. Like you said, you're there with your camera and you're there to document, not there to fight. And war zones, at least in my experience, you know, you knew what your purpose was there and you obviously were embedded with the American forces. Bullets and bombs or mortars, you know, they don't really care, you know, so there's a risk there for you. And the enemy that, that we were fighting was not probably interested in determining who was there to report on the war versus who was there to fight the war itself if you were with that unit. Did it feel empowering knowing that your role was there to just report or does it feel almost I'm trying to think of uh, of another word that would go on the opposite side of empowering where helpless, I, I suppose, yeah. would be a word. You're in a firefight. You know you're not there to fight, so you don't have to worry about that burden. But at the same time, you're relying on others to defend yourself. I'm just curious where your headspace was on that. Well, you know, it, um, the, 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 our safety never um, was the result of sort of individual action, right? So it's not like, I mean, if the outpost had gotten overrun, suddenly you, what you would find is that individuals were making choices that got them killed or protected themselves, you know, like, and, but that's not what happened. It was all group defense, right? So we were defending a position. They were all defending a position, right? And we were all taking risks from the incoming fire. So I was there with a the camera, the idea that if some, if there, even if there'd been an, an extra M4 laying around, which there isn't, and someone, you know, the Hollywood movie version, someone tosses me the N4 and says, hey, things are getting pretty intense. Why don't you like pitch in 
I'm not trained in ta- tactics. I'm not trained in combat. I mean, any, you know, anyone can fire a weapon, right? But that's not really what determines the outcome of a battle. And so that just, you know, it's like, hey, what, you know, do you're watching a football team. Listen, why don't you run onto the field and help those guys? Like, help them. <laughs> guys. They're six foot four. I'm five eight. Like, what, what, really, what do you think I'm going to do? Right? I'm not part of a football team. And a platoon in combat is a football team, and everyone's got their role. And you, you, you can't just throw another guy in there with an M4 and have him make a difference unless it is really, really an apocalyptically bad situation where it actually does come down to one person firing a crucial shot to take out an enemy, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, and those situations happen very close to us. So Chosen Company took a 360 degree ambush while on a, a, a two-day combat mission that where they took 100% casualties, like every dude had a bullet in them, right? The wounded were fighting off the enemy. The, the medic was wounded and trying to treat people and trying to shoot, right? And so... I said to Tim, like, listen, man, that was five miles away, right? Chosen company. It was the sister company. I was like, if that happened to us, it could happen to us. And in that case, we're actually going to want to know how to stuff a wound, stuff Curlix into a wound, how to put on a tourniquet, how to clear a jam on a saw, you know, how to blah, 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 right? We're going to want to know how to do that because actually there could be a situation that's so desperate it might actually come down to a couple of other guys could help, right? So we got trained in all of those things. We just never, they were just, those skills were just never needed. Thank God. Yeah, that's, uh, fortunately you were there surrounded by those people. Yeah. If it had gotten to that point, the catastrophic situation, obviously this is a slightly existential question, but would you have been comfortable picking up a rifle? Oh, totally, absolutely. I mean, as much as, if I were a non-combatant in a kibbutz in Israel on October 7, do you think I would have picked up a knife? Oh yeah, of course I would have. Like as as my as would have my wife, you know. Like yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, absolutely. I you know the, you know journalistic ethics are important, and they they hold that you can't objectively report on a situation that you're an active participant in. So you don't just jump on the saw and 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 let loose a hundred rounds because it seems like it would be fun during a firefight. That makes you really not a freaking journalist, right? Yeah, but there's no ethics that transcends the obligation to protect yourself and others from from death, right? So, um, and you know, at that point, it's no longer journalism; it's survival. And I, I would have had absolutely zero moral compunction. Like I would have no zero. I would have zero moral compunction doing harm to someone who was, you know, had broken into my house at three in the morning and looked like they were going to kill my family. Like, no, of course not. I tend to fall into the same headspace. It's, as, <laughs> some as, people, do, as do most people, I think. I mean, I, you know, I think yeah. very few people will be like, oh, no, no, I'm a pacifist. I'm not, you know, the guy who's in my living room with a baseball bat and a hockey mask on his face. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, like, of, of course, almost anyone would defend themselves against that. I find pacifism to be an excellent academic principle that has a lot yeah. of real world holes in it. But I also support yeah. people believe in whatever they want to. Ladies and gentlemen, I could not be more fired up to introduce the presenting sponsor for season two of Change Agents, Montana Knife Company, founded by somebody that I feel very fortunate to call a personal friend, Master Bladesmith, Josh Smith. Not only a Master Bladesmith, but the youngest Master Bladesmith and one of the most experienced in the world. 
Montana Knife Company blades are some of the finest that I've ever been able to get my hands on. They are the sharpest knife out of the box, and they're some of the easiest to resharpen when you dull the blade. I take them everywhere that I go. I have them in every vehicle that I own and every backpack that I ever take into the backcountry. Specifically, my favorite blade of theirs is the Speedgo. It's lightweight, but so incredibly capable, I never leave home without it. If you're familiar with Montana Knife Company, you know it is often very difficult to get one of their blades because they sell out within minutes of being released. What you should be able to find in stock are the Blackfoot 2.0, Speedgoat, or a Stonewall Skinner. And if you use the code CHANGEAGENTS10, that's going to net you 10% off of your first order. Again, my personal favorite blade is the Speedgoat. If they have them in stock right now, don't mess around. Put it in your cart and complete the checkout. Montana Knife Company, they build working knives for working people. And like I said at the beginning, I could not be more proud to collaborate with them on Change Agents Season 2. You mentioned Tim. Um, I'm curious about the creation of Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues, because I believe it was tied to uh, his loss in Tripoli. Could you explain both of those? Yeah, so Tim was... <coughs> excuse me. Um, Tim was um, covering the Civil War in Libya. It was an assignment we were supposed to both go on. The last minute I couldn't go for, for, for personal reasons. And he went on his own. And I did the classic, you know, be careful. It's, you know, the, the, this isn't the second second platoon battle company anymore. This is your, on your own. And, you know, like um, he covered the Civil War in Liberia um, around the time that I was there. So, you know, he knew his way around a African war zone. But um he he just got you know he got unlucky i mean he took some shrapnel in his in his groin um not even a particularly big piece but it seemed to have severed his femoral at any rate he bled out very very quickly and he died in the back of a rebel pickup truck racing for the misrata the city of misrata racing for the misrata hospital by the time they got him there he was gone they couldn't resuscitate him um so in those moments um after the mortar hit a bunch of people were wounded and killed and it was bloody mayhem, et cetera. These are teenage rebels fighting the Gaddafi's forces and a bunch of journalists. And no one knew what to do with a bleeding groin wound, right? I mean, those are very, very dangerous. But if you stuff the wound and put pressure on it, you might slow, you're not going to stop the blood loss, but you might slow it down enough that you deliver the person to the hospital, you know, still barely alive and at that point they get a transfusion and then it's game on right and now it's like oh now we have a chance right if you do nothing they they're dead in three minutes and yeah. and so i realized that most journalists and myself included other than an afternoon of training out at op restrepo um with doc kelso um that I, you know we really journalists collectively just don't don't have any medical training so i started reporters instructed in saving colleagues and it was to train freelance war reporters not the hired guns, the salaried people working for the big networks, as they already have these resources, freelance war reporters in frontline combat medicine. And it's a, it was a four-day course. You get a, a combat medical kit. Uh, you're, we, we housed you for free for four days. You just had to get to New York. Or we had these trainings all over the world, actually. We had one in Ukraine in 2014 after the invasion of Donbass. Um, and um, so... Um, uh, 
it was great, except we just couldn't sustain the funding and we, and then COVID hit and then we had to mothball it. So unfortunately it's not operational anymore. It could be resurrected. You know, it just needs money. Like, yeah. Um, but, but money's hard to get your hands on even for a good cause. If you were able to get the funding for it, do you think that there would still be a demand for that training? Oh, hugely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And where did you base it out of? Uh, well, we, I mean, we didn't have a building or anything. Um, we, we, the first course was at a place called the Bronx Documentary Center that was started by my good friend, Michael Camber, who was a New York Times photographer who covered Afghanistan and Iraq and was a good friend of Tim's. And he started a, um, uh, he, he, he started basically the Center for Journalism in, in the South Bronx, you know, I mean, in a very rough neighborhood to teach local children the value of an independent, independent press and how to report on the world, starting with the South Bronx, right? And lots to report on there, right? And, and just did an amazing thing. And so he, has the, he had the space. And so we took that over for four days. And so in a sense, we were based there, but really, you know, we wound up doing trainings in Kenya and uh, in, um, in South America, uh, in, in, in Ukraine. We wound up doing trainings every, in Kosovo and trainings everywhere. You've uh, you've written a lot about the war going on in Ukraine. Can you, from the perspective of somebody who would be reporting there, can you kind of unpack the dangers that a reporter would be facing over there? I mean, I haven't reported from there. I you know after Tim got killed, I stopped war reporting, and uh, then I I remarried, had a now I have two young children, so I'm not you know I don't even cross Houston Street against the light. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. in a sense, pathetic. Right. But uh, that's so I'm definitely not reporting on wars. And I just don't want to be away from my children. You know, I came to fatherhood late and I, I don't want to miss a moment of it. But um, so for, but my understanding, of course, is that the Russian military is both incompetent and deadly. And when they decide to it's a classic pairing, role, really. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> when they conduct a, a rolling artillery barrage across a piece of terrain and you're there, you're dead, right? I mean, like, I mean, this is not the, the Taliban weren't doing this. I mean, the Taliban barely had mortars, you know, like, I mean, they didn't have heavy, more heavy mortars, basically, right? Not even that, much less tanks and everything else. So, you know, there's the <clears throat> enormous dangers of of, um, of indirect fire and ar artillery and uh rockets and missiles um and 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 there's you know frontline tr you know trench to trench combat fortunately for the press in some ways uh, they're protected from their worst or best instincts depend on depending on how you see it but the ukrainian military is not letting journalists almost no journalists near the front lines um so journalists you know after the initial invasion when it was sort of you know madcap scramble for access journalists were getting caught like in bosnia in sort of no man's land where they didn't know which tank you know whose tank was what you know is that a russian tank or a ukraine you know they did and so there were a lot of there were a lot of journalistic casual journalist casualties in those first weeks and months and then the front line like in bosnia the front line stabilized you weren't they're not really being near, let near the front lines for you know, some understandable reasons. And so I think the journalist deaths have plummeted in Ukraine right now. What do you think that that has done 
with their ability to actually tell the truth about what's going on on the ground. You know, absent access and their ability to report what they see or record what they see in a firsthand experience, I worry about general transparency and, and the yep. messaging that can come out from war zones like that when you are restricted to or bottlenecked to particular pieces of information and, and then with you know withholding other ones. Yeah, I mean, that was our norm uh, until the invasion of Iraq. And I think, George, I mean, you know, journalists were not allowed with special forces in Afghanistan in 2001, 2002. They were nowhere near... Um, Nowhere, nowhere near our frontline troops. Um, uh, Grenada, Panama, Gulf War One, like they just didn't let the journalists anywhere near the front lines, which is a pity, right? I mean, yeah. that's not the way you should run a democracy. And I sort of understand the military reasoning, but then George Bush came along, and I didn't vote for the man, but I'm endlessly appreciative to him for this. He came along and decided. I think he thought that the invasion of Iraq was going to be such a spectacular success, and initially it was, I guess, that he wanted it there to be documented. I'm guessing that that's, that was his rationale. But then, you know, then it started to get complicated, right? 04, 05, it got a little messier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there were some really crazy phrases like, oh, yeah, the attack, you know, the American casualties are going up because the enemy's getting desperate, right? I'm like, that, come on, man, like, just don't say shit like that to us, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and then at, at a certain point, I think they probably regretted their decision to allow frontline access to American to reporters. Um, and then it was too late. Uh, and uh, but it's interesting. The U.S. military allowed frontline access to reporters of any nation, right? I mean, uh, including Al Jazeera. I mean, think about that, right? Um, whereas the French, the Brits, etc., they are very, very restricted. So I, you know, really, and sort of as a a lover of democracy and of this country, I was very, very proud of this country that we were the shining example of press access and freedom of press. And even our NATO allies were actually not like, not acting like democracies in that in that regard. And so as far as Ukraine goes, like, um, I get it. I think there's other ways of having transparency. There's not much, there really isn't much uh, information on a front line. I think the one thing you might be worried about is, are they executing prisoners? Are they killing civilians? Those are the really, really urgent questions about frontline reporting to make sure that both sides are like really respecting the Geneva Conventions and human rights. And, you know, I think the Ukrainians actually have been quite good about respecting human rights. It seems like they're treating Russian POWs better than the Russian military treats their own soldiers actually i think they're better fed i think their wounds are cared for you know i actually i think all the evidence i see is that the ukrainians are being extremely uh, really quite principled about their treatment of civilians and pow's and you know if it were not true i would really want journalists on the front line but it seems like they're acting quite well there's a lot of things i like about the mountain tough program But I think primarily what I enjoy is they focus on mental toughness in addition to just the physical toughness. Everything they do is grounded in one purpose, life transformations and being strong between the years in the mind. And there's also a community of 15,000 plus Mountain Tough athletes. So the community is strong, they're supportive, and they're going to help keep you accountable. So you can train anywhere. 
You can stream anywhere. You can access guided training and on-demand workouts right from your phone, your tablet, or TV or computer, whatever you're into. And everything you need is in one spot. The Mountain Tough subscription gets you access to all the Mountain Tough programs, new programs, and bonus content. And they have programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavyweights, those who like to work out at home with no gear or minimal gear, and everything in between. Mountain Tough has been the trusted training by the dedicated for years now, including U.S. military special forces and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you to not start today. With Mountain Tough, you can conquer your goals with the ideal program for your lifestyle and schedule. Train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. Most importantly, they will help you train your mindsets. So you are always ready for anything that life throws away. Mountain Tough subscribers get full access to world-class home and gym programs, groundbreaking mental toughness training, self-improvement, prehab and rehab, biomechanical form coaching, stretching and mobility flows, nutrition guidance, challenge workouts, and the global Mountain Tough community. Mountain Tough is offering Change Agents listeners an incredible offer. You're going to get 40% off on the all-new Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription with the code CHANGEAGENTS. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to receive 40% off, a savings of about $100 on your Mountain Tough Plus annual subscription. That is MTN, Mike Tango November Tough.com and enter the code CHANGEAGENTS to save 40%. That is less than 50 cents per day for the best in-class physical and mental training. Good morning, everybody. As you know, Change Agents is an Ironclad original. But what you may not know is that for over a decade, Ironclad has worked with brands and individuals to create world-class films, series, podcasts, and ad campaigns. In fact, I've been working with Ironclad for the past few years. I was introduced to them on a project through the Navy SEAL Foundation. I've worked with them uh, on a variety of projects, even up here in Montana, long before they proposed the idea of change agents to me. They're the best in their field. And I say that because there are plenty of people out there looking for the best, looking for the cream of the crop, looking for the top of the triangle. And if you're looking for that, you need to look no further than Ironclad. If you ever need media by way of film, a series, podcasts, or ad campaigns, they have you covered. You can reach out today and follow them anywhere at This Is Ironclad, the ampersand, and then This Is Ironclad, or visit them online, thisisironclad.com. Again, www.thisisironclad.com. When you were describing Ukraine and the Geneva Conventions or things happening at that front leading edge of warfare, it brings my mind to what's going on in Israel and with Gaza. Um, it seems that, well, it doesn't seem that, but the New York Times has reported that dozens of journalists have died covering the Israeli-Gaza war. Why do you think that particular conflict is so dangerous? Do you think it's because they are reaching to get to or racing to get to that front leading edge? Well, I mean, I don't know if those, it would be interesting to know, I'm guessing they, that they are not journalists who are embedded with frontline Israeli forces. I'm not even sure Israeli forces have in, embedded reporters in their, with their frontline troops. I don't think they do, actually. They, they have military reporters who have some autonomy, not completely, obviously. Um, I'm guessing that those journalist deaths are 
um, what the military in Iraq, U.S. military in Iraq called unilaterals, meaning not embedded, but with the civilian population covering the American actions from the other side, right? And I'm guessing that the journalists who were dying in Gaza overwhelmingly are unilaterals covering Israeli military action from the other side. Well, of course, you're, if you're covering a war where there's, ma where there's massive aerial bombardment and um, out of a relatively small population, 15,000 civilians have been killed, you know, there's a decent chance that some of those dead civilians are going to be journalists, like, of course. In addition, there's extremely disturbing reports, credible, credible reports of the Israeli military deliberately targeting with targeted rifle fire or mortar fire journal, uh, journalists who are marked as journalists, right? And that really? is like absolutely disgusting, right? And no, no democracy for that matter, no country in the world should be doing that. It's revolting. What do you, what is your take as a journalist on, and, and I say this as a lay person who has access to social media, traditional media outlets, whatever people may uh, consider those things to be. I guess a better way would, would be is I don't have any inside back channel information as to what's going on. But there are two, it seems to be diametrically opposed opinions or faces of that conflict being reported from each side. How do you as a journalist separate or do you even try to separate the, the truth from fiction in those narratives? Well, I do always have to be careful about claims um, about claims from either side about the the brutality of the other side. I mean, there's just there's each side has an incentive to amplify or even straight up make up claims of brutality, saying, "See, see why we have to fight them? They're, you know, they're this bad, right?" And um, you always have to be on guard against that. Now, I'm not reporting over there. I just read the New York Times every day, right? Um, and um, uh, Friedman, the, the New York Times columnist, um, you know, I think is quite good. I mean, he's Friedman, he's Jewish, right? Of course, right? But he's, I think he's very impartial about uh, the sins and virtues of the Israelis and the sins and virtues of the Palestinians. And of, Hamas doesn't have virtues, but you know what I'm saying? Like the, the, yeah. the, the, the territorial dispute about Gaza, this sort of unresolvable dispute. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I think you can find journalists who are being clearly uh, signaling, look, I'm trying to be impartial here, right? And and so um, I'm, when I see wrongdoing, I'm going to call it no matter what side it's on. Um, I, I, that's the only thing you can do with war. I mean, I, you know, otherwise you're just a partisan hack and there's plenty of those. But there's also plenty of people who rise above that. And, you know, Friedman's one of them. Who else would you uh, who else I was going to say, who would you point people towards? And maybe they could be pointed towards that based off your suggestion. But who do you look towards other than Friedman when it comes to maybe Ukraine? Do you have any particular news outlets or reporters that you think are doing an excellent job um, war correspondents right now? I mean, I think The New York Times is doing a good job. I mean, I, you know, I live in New York and that, you know, it's sort of the paper of record and um uh, you know, CNN's not bad. I mean, I mean, Fox News did some good reporting, and I, you know, in sort of in terms of domestic politics, I abhor Fox News. But you know, they, their overseas bureau is like pretty serious, and mm -hmm. um, uh, so I, I'm, you know, I think most, I think most of the news services operating overseas in war zones, you know, those those young people, often young people who reported risking their lives to report on the war, 
don't I think most of them don't want to risk their lives to produce propaganda for somebody. They're they're actually interested in the truth. That's why they became journalists, right? Otherwise, become a stockbroker and make a lot of money. But if you're gonna, if you know if you're going to sentence yourself to a lifetime of poverty, you might as well be dedicating yourself to the to the truth and not a sort of partisan like towing a partisan line. So, you know, I think the quality of reporting from places like Ukraine is like incredibly high. Um, and what I don't trust is what um, sort of media personalities and politicians do with the truth in the sort of political space of our sort of na- our sort of national argument. Like, you know, that I, I don't trust it at all. And, and I think people misuse I think people misuse um, reality horribly in that political argument. I think they're completely unconscionable and grotesque. Sliding away, maybe a layer from the on the ground, real time reporting. Do you have when it comes to just uh, works of war journalism, do you have any books, uh, podcasts, feeds of any kind that you would recommend to people, things that have been uh, impactful or moving towards you? You know, I wish I could say yes, and that, but but I've got <laughs> I, I got a four year old and a seven year old, and I've been on book deadline, and so if I get to read the Times every morning, it's I mean, a good day. It's a good day, <laughs> right? And, uh, so I just and I'm very sort of technology averse. I have a flip phone. You know, I don't like listening to podcasts. Means I have to be in my office with my laptop. You know, if I had to choose between that and doing something else, I'd probably do something else because I want to live my life, right? So. Yeah. So I don't, I, you know, I can't do this sort of passive. I'm driving somewhere. I'm going to listen to a podcast on my smartphone because I don't have one. And uh, so, so I, you know, I actually, there are amazing news sources out there and I, you know, I wish I could just rattle off a few because they deserve to be mentioned. Um, I, you know, I just, I, those aren't a resource for me because I just simply don't have the time. Based on your experience, if somebody were to come to you and let's say the U S government was, getting ready to present legislation, whatever it may be, that would remove the uh, position of the war correspondent. They were they were thinking of restricting access to the military and military operations. How would you justify and explain the importance and the role of the war correspondent? I mean, I, I would say that um, people who are unmonitored don't necessarily act well and good behavior often comes from the idea that you know what there's a camera in this convenience store so i'm not going to rob it i'm going to buy my candy i'm going to spend a dollar and buy a candy bar whatever a candy bar costs these days right so you know monitoring and i read this amazing theory about uh the rise of um the um of monotheistic religion, which basically started around the time of the first cities. So, of course, for most of human history, people lived in small groups where everyone knew each other and people had their eyes on each other, right? Because you're living in a group of 30, 40, 50 platoon-sized element, basically, right? When you had uh, uh, cities like Uruk and Ur and in the Middle East and then spread throughout the world, you have a lot of strangers living together and you don't know who's doing what. You don't know people personally. And so you can get away with a lot of bad behavior. And so they came up with the idea the theory is that monotheism with an all-seeing, all vengeful, you know, vengeful, all-seeing, all-knowing God was a way of scaring people into good behavior, even though they were strangers in a crowd. 
right? Do not, the pickpocket, you know, God will see the pickpocket even if nobody else does. That's the theory, right? Because everyone knows that if you're not watched, you might act, you, you won't act as well as if you know you are watched. So how do we apply that to the U.S. military? The passions of combat, the decisions of combat, are, are they, they, they hew very, very close to a moral bright line that you cannot cross, right? And it's going to get crossed more easily if there's just no one around to report what happened. You know, thank God someone, Abu Ghraib, reported on the abuse of prisoners. It was a soldier. It wasn't even a journalist. It was a soldier, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then all of a sudden, everyone got all uptight about, oh my God, what's happening? You know, like, Thank God that was reported. And then I think probably conditions improved in Abu Ghraib because it was being monitored. Right. So my pit, my 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 pitch for journalism is you want the U.S. military to be morally, technologically, tactically, strategically, in every sense, the best military in the world. And you probably are not going to get there without outside observation. Right. You are doing the military a disservice by saying, you know what, no one's going to watch what you're doing. Get it done. We don't want to know the details. Do what you got to do. That's a terrible thing to do to the U.S. military. And really the best thing we can do for it and therefore for our country and our democracy to be like, you know what? Everything's going to get watched because no one's entirely trustworthy. And so we're going to watch the politicians and make sure that they're not, they're not voting for legislation and then taking, you know, a cut from Lockheed Martin on, the, uh, you know, uh, like we you got to make sure that people are acting well. And the only way to do that is to have strong whistleblower laws and a robust robust uh, press corps, both in war zones and domestically. And, you know, when people start saying, oh, the press is the enemy because they're calling out, you know, they're, they're catching people in bad behavior, that is completely messed up thinking. The problem is the freaking bad behavior. It's not that the press corps called it out, right? And so that's a deeply anti, being anti-press is a deeply anti-democratic position and I'm absolutely appalled that anyone in this country, this democracy, politician or otherwise, would say anything like that. Like it's it's grotesque. I, I tend to agree with you. Actually, I don't tend to agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I think that role and the transparency is essential just to even maintain the integrity of the uniform military service. You know, one huge difference, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, at least in the military, whether these systems are used or not, when people come back from those war zones, whether it be counseling resources or support resources, family network resources, there are programs available to help as a life jacket to keep people afloat through the experiences that they live their way through. And I'm looking at a stat in front of me. Um, you know, the National Institute of Health, Health has stated that the war journalist lifetime prevalence of post-traumatic stress was at about nearly 30 percent and the rates of major depression above 20%. And I'm curious, as a war correspondent, do you come back and just have to figure it out on your own? Or are there mechanisms and systems in place? Because the experiences, when you were out with making Restrepo, your experiences were damn similar to the people that were right next to you. Again, like you described, you weren't there to fire a rifle, you were there to document, but that doesn't mean you weren't living through the same stress and trauma. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, the the, the moral injury that comes from firing a weapon at other people and killing other people, I didn't have to deal with that, right? What I did have to deal with was the sense of being a voyeur. Like, I don't need to be there, and I am there. And not only that, I'm photographing everything. And these these are the worst days in people's lives, and I'm documenting them and making a freaking film. Like, if you want to go on a guilt trip, you can do it pretty easily as a journalist as well, right? So, 
Uh, no, I mean, I was freelance, so I didn't even, you know, I mean, I was working for ABC and, and Condé Nast, but, you know, they didn't even owe me a, 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 you know, a visit to the shrink because I was an independent contractor, right? So luckily humans are adaptive and we're adapted to survive and, and, and heal from trauma or the human race wouldn't exist, right? Like one, you know, one saber tooth tiger attack into the camp and everyone's like traumatized for life and unfunctional. Like if that's how trauma worked, that you're incapacitated for life after a traumatic incident, um, the human race would have died out. And so luckily, most for most people with most trauma, they resume functionality within about a year. Uh, that includes a, a child dying of cancer, their spouse getting killed in a car accident, losing a leg in a car accident, um, experiencing combat. You know, within about a year, people have rebooted enough to, to, to function, to hold a job to take care of a family, to whatever. Like, and it's not that you have been, of course, your child dies of cancer, you're you're changed forever. I mean, of course, like there's no, but that doesn't mean you, that you that you can't hold a job for the rest of your life, right? So, so humans, we're social primates, we heal well in a communal environment. Um, and uh, so for me, what I found was that in the weeks or months that followed a traumatic journalistic trip, um, I struggled. I mean, I really struggled. And then, you know, and then things sort of gradually got better. But, I, you know, I there was times where I was actually quite worried about myself. And, you know, I, might, I lost my first marriage partly because of this stuff. And and uh, um, I, well, I had some real issues. I mean, I had to go get help. I, eventually, I had to go, honestly, I had to go get help. I had to actually talk to somebody. Um, mm -hmm. But I got, you know, I got over it. I think your struggles and the fact that you needed to go get help is the healthy response. I actually argue against the uh, the D being added to the post-traumatic stress because I don't I don't believe it is a disorder. I'd, unless you're a sociopath and you're thrown into the environment at Restrepo, to use it as an example again, if you're there for a year experiencing those things and you are completely and utterly unfazed and untouched and you just come back and reintegrate into society, I'm a little bit more worried about you than somebody who realizes and recognizes I have some things I need to work through, but it's going to be okay. And it's going to take some right. time. I, you know, I think the D refers to the consequences of trauma afterwards. So if you're having a trauma, if you experience trauma and are having a trauma response, um, and if it, if it subsides within, you know, weeks or months or a year and you return to a functioning life, um, that's the human norm. Right. And uh, if you're incapacitated for your lifetime, you are, I, I would say the word disorder actually applies because a disorder is something that keeps you from functioning in a healthy way. It doesn't mean that your reaction was a disorder. It means that the consequences of your reaction are actually impeding your life. So depression, I mean, look, something bad, you know, your, your, your child dies of cancer and you go into a, a, you know, a six month deep depression. That's not it. I mean, that's not a disorder. That's a natural reaction to an unthinkable tragedy, right? If you're still de deeply depressed 10 years later and you can't function, you can start talking about having a disorder, right? And so, I, you know, I think that the, the, the D is about, you know, like how fast you heal because you heal you must, right? Like, yeah. And I know the U.S. the VA will dispense sort of lifelong PTSD disability. You know, that's you know, that's, that's the, that's the largesse of a wealthy nation. 
it doesn't reflect a medical reality that once you have when you know once you have the PTSD, like you're you're screwed for life. It's just not it's just not how it works. That particular system, and I know we touched on this uh, the first time we talked, in my opinion, is a financial incentive for people not to get better. Yeah. Unfortunately, under the current structure. And I mean, that's a conversation <laughs> in and of itself. And I want to be respectful of your time. Can you tell me about the Veterans Town Hall initiatives? Yeah. Um, so people are often traumatized in groups because we, we are not entirely solitary beings. Um, and for most of human history, people were traumatized in groups and then recovered in groups. They were traumatized and recovered in their survival group, right? Their sort of closest kith and kin, the 40, 50, 60 people that is, was in their sort of community. Uh, and that works very, very well. Human contact with people that you love and trust mitigates all kinds of psychological stress, cortisol and all the, the, the works. I mean, they know, they've measured this. They know that it works, right? Um, the problem with modern warfare <clears throat> is that you're sent 6,000, 10,000 miles away to, you know, like fight people that you don't have a personal beef with. They're just, they're there shooting at you and you're shooting at them. And then you come home and you're no longer in your platoon. You're no longer at Fort Bragg. You're no longer, no longer blah, blah, blah. You're back in a population that actually didn't suffer hardship and danger and engage in killing and et cetera, et cetera you are not recovering in a group, uh, in the group that you were traumatized with. You're recovering by yourself among a bunch of people that actually have no real way of knowing what your experience felt like. And that's um, outside of that's way outside the human norm. And it makes trauma recovery very, very difficult. So the, the vet, so, so long preamble, preamble, I apologize, but the, the idea behind, behind Vets Town Hall is it's rooted in something called the gourd dance from the Kiowa nation of the Southern Great Plains. Then the ceremony was this, when warriors returned from the battlefield, and this is a close organic tribal society, when they returned from the battlefield fighting U.S. cavalry or whatever they've been fighting, they came back. Each warrior had the opportunity to sing and retell and dance their exploit, his exploits that he committed for the tribe. Right. Like what he did to defend the tribe and kill the tribe's enemies and the entire community gathered round. And I'm sure there was a lot of bragging. There was a lot of bravado. There was a lot of boasting. I mean, of course. Right. Uh, but there was this cathartic opportunity for each warrior to retell what they did. And and it and, and it and it forced allowed slash forced the community to take moral responsibility for the violence that was committed on their behalf. Right. And. um so Vets Town Hall, the way it works is that, you know, we don't live in a small scale organic tribal society. We live in towns and cities, but the center of every community is the town hall. And on Veterans Day, it's not open for town business. Right. Um, which means that it's available for any good purpose. And so Vets Town Hall costs absolutely nothing. You don't have to be a veteran to do one. You can be a civilian. Um, open up the town hall, turn on the TA system. And a veteran of any war who served in any capacity, you don't have to be a Navy SEAL. You can be a supply clerk. We don't care. But if you served this country uh, uh, in, in wartime or even in peacetime, you know, I mean, it, 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 I think that you can argue you know, peace, a peacetime army has its own stresses, including guilt that you didn't fight. Right. Um, yeah. You get to speak for 10 minutes uh, about what it felt like to, to 
to serve your country, right? And, you know, there's some Vietnam vets, or for that matter, some Afghan and Iraq war vets who are going to be really angry. They're like, are you kidding? You made us fight that war? Oh, my God. Shame on you, right? Why? Well, I did my duty, but what, what about you people? You, you let us do this. You made us do this. You know, there's some vets who are going to be very, very proud. We had World, World War II vets, right? I mean, amazing, you know, very old guys. Incredible stories, right? Um, and uh, and then you're going to be have people have people who, you know, frankly are um, are, are still grieving brothers or sisters that they lost, and so so moved that they can't even really speak. They're just up there crying in front of the microphone. That's happened too. Some people will be all frankly all three in ten minutes, right? Yeah. So the duty of the citizen, um, you don't have to serve your nation with a rifle. But if other people are doing that, I, you know, I think you could argue that your duty is to stand and hear them about what their experience was and offer yourselves, you know, at least just, all right, I want to hear, you know, that's, that's it. And welcome home, brother. You know, like, that's it. That's all you got to do. And the, the um, experience for both sides, both for the civilians in the audience and, uh, and the veterans themselves is so profound. And so please go to vetstownhall.org. Vets it costs nothing. We want to see this in every every town in the country, and one, and I'll uh, you know I'll end with the, and please donate. We don't need much money. We need a little bit of money to keep the um organ to, to keep the organization functional at a national level. It's a nonprofit, um, uh, and but I'll end with this. It's one of the few opportunities that Americans have to be in a uh, a public space where politics is absolutely forbidden. You are with fellow Republicans, fellow Democrats, vets, non-vets, whatever, and politics is not allowed in the room. And uh, and it's one of the few opportunities we all have to actually transcend those awful divisions and just simply be a, a citizen of this nation, um, hearing hearing what our, our veterans have to say about their service. It's super simple, but it is a, a be- the seeds of the beginning of healing this nation of its divisions, which frankly are a greater threat to our nation than Al Qaeda ever will be, in my opinion. I agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, I'll close with, I am deeply appreciative and thankful of the role that you and fellow journalists have held um, when it comes to the wartime activities of our country. I, I agree with you that allowing entities and individuals to operate in the shadow is not a good idea. You might get away with it once or twice, but there's a lot of things you can get away with once or twice that'll end up with catastrophic uh, consequences. And when I was uh, just brushing up on your body of work before I had you on Cleared Hot, I came across a quote that I believe is attributed to you, which I'm going to be honest, I think I've been uh, totally murdering it every time I have been repeating it, but I'll run this one by you to yeah. make sure that it was yours. Essentially, it said, the role of the press does not exist to tell you what to think. They exist to tell you what to think about. And using that as a litmus test for the bombardment of information that we have, and this is a few weeks ago I found this quote, but I ask myself on any platform, whether it's traditional media or social media, I just, I ask myself, are they actually trying to get me to think or are they telling me what to think? And it is shocking if you were to write down a, a column in the middle of a piece of paper, how many of the times they're trying to tell you what to think versus the number of the times they're trying to tell you what to think about. And it's an incredibly powerful, powerful quote. And uh, hopefully 
I didn't chop it too badly, and hopefully it's actually yours. Because I've been telling everybody that this is Sebastian Younger's quote. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And I, listen, I'm repeating. I'm repeating my wife who said that about theater. She said theater. Yeah. Theater is not supposed to tell you what to think. Uh, it's supposed to tell you what to think about, what issues to think about. And I was like, oh my god, that's journalism as well. Listen, there's plenty of quote journalists who are out there telling you what to think, and and, and it can be very subtle. You know, when a when a TV news co- host uses sarcasm or rolls their eyes. Uh, the Biden administration, blah, 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 I roll. You are communicating to the viewer how to think about what you just said, right? That makes you not a journalist. Sorry, man. Like, and CNN is just as bad as Fox News, right? MSNBC. Oh, they all, they're, the the all, laundry list. Yeah. Whatever one you could name, yeah. it's they're editorialized. It's I don't believe it's even journalism, journalism anymore. It's editorialized opinion, like you said, either verbal or nonverbal. Yeah. And, you know, there's room for, in the democracy for editorials. Great. No problem. Like, tell me your opinion. I'm in. But the, but we, we need a, an, a, an objective news source that whatever your politics are, you're not going to tip the tip the scales to make to spin a story to look better for your Republicans or your Democrats. Right. You know, you're just not going to do it. Right. Like, um, I mean, imagine a doctor withholding information about cancerous cells because they like the patient. Like, oh, I don't want to upset her. She has cancer. I'm going to not give her the hard. No, I mean, give me the freaking hard news. Right. Like yeah. if you you're a Republican and you love your Republican Party, that's the party you should be the, actually be most honest with about their sins. Right. And likewise for the Democrats. And let me just I'll finish with this because it's such an um, important thing. So the M-16 had enormous mechanical problems in the early days of Vietnam. They kept jamming. People were getting killed because their rifles would jam. They were very, very temperamental. And guys on the ground, American soldiers, were actually using AKs because they they were better weapons, right? The AK was like a better weapon. So they had their M-16, but they were actually fighting with AKs because they knew they wouldn't jam, right? And so it, it was a journalist who broke that story and it turned out that there was a legislator a senator or congressman who had a cousin or an uncle or i don't know what that was in the arms business and it was a sweetheart deal and that's why the m16s were pieces of shit right it was a it was a like backroom deal that made someone a lot of money and guys were freaking dying and the 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 military the u.s military the pentagon was never going to let this information out right they were in, in a sense Clearly, they would rather let soldiers die than revise the the whole system that produced the armed procurement system where everyone was making a lot of money off it. Right. It was totally corrupt. It took a journalist that was with American forces in Vietnam to break that story against enormous government pressure. Now, tell me like that you don't want journalists with you in combat. Like, try and tell me that after that story. Like, come on, man. Like, and there's a lot of American soldiers who don't like the press. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, the press has done good things. And that's maybe the primary example of what the press can do to help the, the, the American soldier in the field. That is a perfect ending. Mr. Younger, until next time, thank you again for your time. Thank you very much. Take care. If you'd like to learn more about Sebastian Younger's work, you can visit risctraining.org. That is all one word, risctrainingnormalspelling.org, as well as vetstownhall.org. Thanks for listening to Change Agents, an ironclad original presented by Montana Knife Company, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode.